I admit before you in handling eschatology, that is, handling the end times. As a seminary student, as a college student, and early on in my work, which I'm still quite early on, I am not a very seasoned minister in the pulpit by any means, I'm coming up on my baby step five years. But I say all that to introduce, in all of those layers of study, I have largely been of the persuasion that end times is that one thing that is so bound up in mystery and it has so many different colors and so many different strands, so many complexities and so many images. I, even in my seminary time, bowed out early. I cried uncle. And I felt that the the big picture is, once again, that the Lord will return. And that the church celebrates in Christ. The deposit and seal of which we sang about this morning, the seal of the Spirit, the down payment, Paul tells us, of that day of redemption abides now. And that's enough. Let's not worry then, since we are indeed bearing the seal. Let's just leave the outcome to a sovereign God. Trust in Him that He'll get it right. And we need not ask nor labor over difficult questions. Time will prove that to be foolishness. We celebrate every year the Lord's first coming. Don't we? The gifts, a time marked out in our calendar that's particular to us, a point of highlighted celebration, significance about the incarnational ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. A three in one agreeing amongst themselves to send forth the Son, that the Son would come and be made like the children. They would rescue them. And we celebrate that. And then for some reason we take a lazy attitude toward the second return. Wouldn't it be a point of rejoicing for the church that as we celebrate the Lord's first appearance in human history, so too would we be moved with great hope and eager expectation the Lord's second appearance that is a day of redemption for the children who embraced the first appearance. We are naive and foolish to think that it doesn't matter how the Lord will return. But as we know how it is indeed, and we labor together to discern how it is He has spoken to us about His return, hope expands. Persevering power attends a sense of meaning about my time now is heightened. Adding to my life this hope of his return adds to my life a sense of purpose and holiness that I want to be found on that day in love with him by his power, loving my children, caring for my wife, loving my church family, saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. This comes through laboring to lay hold of the hope that awaits us in the Lord's return. So it is, I trust, I have been moved to rejoice in the Lord's return as you yourself have been moved to rejoice, to labor with me this morning on the one return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We continue this morning, as it has been read for you, about this one glorious appearing of King Jesus. And Scripture has wed together. And and, and this is the one piece that I I really want to... if If from this point forward, in the next three hours of our time together, cancel lunch plans. We have a long one today. If from this point forward, as we labor together to walk through is what is, I confess to you, points within me and my studies that I will offer to you, something that is deeply challenging. If I lose you by the time that we unite once again in the end, hear me at this point, please. It is that consistently throughout the book of Revelation, as many of us have walked for a long time together now, There are, as I have beat this dead horse, so too will I once again beat it one last time. 
there is one glorious appearing. And in that one glorious appearing, there are two experiences to be had. No more than two. No less than two. Definitively two experiences. It is as Isaiah weds this experience, this one return together, Isaiah 63 weds it together. There was a day of vengeance in my heart. One experience, one appearing, weds together. A day of vengeance was in my heart. The year of redemption was near. One appearing, two experiences. Vengeance and wrath or redemption and salvation. There are not more experiences to be had in that one glorious appearing than I just listed for you. There are two. And the dividing line for finding yourself in that one glorious appearing, hidden in Christ, clothed with his blood that has atoned for all my sin. I have exchanged my unrighteousness and my sin for his righteousness and his purity. This is known as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the dividing line of this one glorious appearing. A day of vengeance for those who have looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ in his first appearing and have said of themselves, I don't have room. I'm sorry. My inn is full. I have no room. Those who have continued to spurn it. I, I have other things I need to, right? Sow my wild oats while they might be sown. I'll square with God when I'm old. When the day of sowing my seeds has kind of run its course and it gets boring, maybe then... You know, or maybe I'll take the perspective that when I start having a family and start having kids, all these things will kind of go by the wayside. I'll start squaring away my life because I got little kids now. And we're waiting for these other milestones in our natural life to cause us to then reconcile ourselves unto God. And Jesus, John, and Peter all would rebuke in a moment. A day will appear like a thief in the night when they will say to themselves, peace and prosperity, don't worry about it. And terror will seize them in a moment. Or John, in the very first chapter, Jesus will appear and nations will wail on account of him. I got it wrong. I didn't sit under the authority of the preached word. Gaze upon my sin, repent and receive the Lord. I hardened my heart in the day of redemption that was offered to me. And I found out I waited too long. Because there is one glorious appearing. And there are two, no more than two, and of necessity, absolutely two experiences. Vengeance or redemption. With Jesus Christ, who stands at the center. This is what we're looking at at the return of King Jesus. So it is as we walk through this passage this morning beyond that. That was my 100,000 foot offer to you. And now we're going to slowly begin to descend. But we'll go slow together. And as Matt prayed. This is not reserved for scholars or seminarians. Or someone sitting in a smoke filled room somewhere. It's to the church of Christ. To be a blessing and a great benefit to you this morning I trust as we walk through this text this morning. I want to pick up where we begun last week with you in verse 13. As we looked upon the Lord in this one return, He who was riding upon the white horse of victory, wearing the royal diadems that are upon Him in His achievement of the resurrection and His exaltation. He has a name that is written upon Him that no one knows but Himself. 
And this one who appears is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called. So it it kind of, I'm not sure if 12 kind of discloses to us actually, John, in some sense, we didn't know the name, but now we're being told the name. Uh, It's unclear, but indeed we do know one name for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in this apocalyptic vision, he is called the Word of God. And the saints of heaven. This is where we begin to pick up fresh this morning together. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. The question that is important to us, as I said to you in, in, in the introduction, we don't, need to, we don't need to string this out. We don't need to really labor hard here to understand what is taking place. But I would share with you, great hope is about to be built in your heart and in mind together as we labor together to dissect our overall handling of 19, 20, 21, and 22 is going to come to bear upon describing who is this army. Do you care at all? You do. You would read it and you'd say, I wonder who the army was. Who, who is it? So I see that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is descending in victory. And now an army. I look past the divine warrior and standing next to him slash behind him in his wake as he's returning is a great army dressed in fine linens, white and pure. And my question as a reader and as a student of the word is to ask necessarily the question, who is the army? It's critical. If you turn back to 17, look back in your Bibles to chapter 17 and look with me verse 14 because we have already begin, been given a preview of this war that we're about to walk through for the next two weeks. And we've been given this preview all along the way of this one return. Not many returns, but one return with Two experiences with Christ at the center begins to describe for us the army. If you're there in chapter 17, join with me from chapter 17 as I read with you beginning in verse 13. Beginning in verse 13, remember, we are asking as students together, who is this army that is coming with Jesus? Verse 13, these are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. There is something taking place here with the beast. Verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. The language here of the preview of the end war is that they will come together to make war against the Lamb. And we will get into this in the next portion next week of chapter 19, as I promise. We will at some point come to the conclusion of chapter 19. I think this was supposed to be on the calendar one sermon. I think we're rolling three now and we'll head into a final one I trust next week. But it is important that we not skip over this. But as we arrive at the one battle, he who is, and you saw the language there, right? It's the same Christ. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of kings. It's the same language of him who is here in 19. Lord of lords. King of kings. And he comes to conquer his enemies. And coming with him are these people. Who we find out more description about them in chapter 17. Not a different people, but the same people in chapter 19. And they're described in chapter 17 to us in a little bit of a different way, aren't they? They're called and Elect, or and chosen, the term there, and faithful. Who do we know that describes throughout the entire book and indeed beyond this book into the New Testament? Who is it that is faithful? Who is it that Jesus says to them throughout the book of Revelation, be faithful? Who is it in here that wants to rise up and hear, moreover, is it required of a steward that he just be found faithful? Who is it that glories as they sang this morning the great redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ that he called me and I heard him and I obeyed him and by grace I seek to follow him in faithfulness. Who is it? It's the church. It's you. It's me. It's those who love him 
have in the word of God that appeared obeyed him. He called and you have heard and followed. And you pray for endurance in the spirit to remain faithful. So it is, we know that it is undeniably a description of the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the church. So now we see that in 17. It's the church. And now we see they're described differently in pictures of their clothing in 19, but they're not a separate people. They're the same people who come with the one Lord of Lords, who come with the one King of Kings, and they ride with Him, and they celebrate Him, and they return in great victory with Him. It's the church. How can I convince you of this in a second step? Consider their clothing. So go back with me now to chapter 19 to continue to establish. Does this detail matter? It does, believer. It does. And the army of the Lord, verse 14. We know this army is described in 1714 as called faithful and chosen. And here in 14, the same army appearing with the same Lord are described now according to their clothing. They are arrayed in fine linen. White and pure. Can I convince you this morning that that is a continued picture of the church by describing to you there are nine appearances. Nine, okay? Nine appearances throughout the book of Revelation with describing people's clothing. White garments. Nine of them. And there is only one of them one of them, fifteen six, one, that does not refer directly to the church. Only one. So if we were to take our odds, as it were, with the description of combining chapter 17 as called, faithful, and chosen, with those who wear white garments, and it's always singularly stood for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have followed in obedience to the gospel and have thereby received blood-washed linens. Are you thankful for that this morning? That you bear blood-washed linens. No longer the miry muck that you put upon your linens. You wear through receiving the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've exchanged your soiled garments for blood-washed linens of righteousness. And so you are here described as the army who comes with Christ, wearing indeed those bright white linens that belong to you because of the testimony of the Word of God. So who is the army? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That begs a question in your mind, and you're all looking at me with this question. I know it. You're following me. I can sense it. We're walking together right now. And you're asking the next necessary question. If it is the church that is returning with the Lord Jesus Christ, if it is right now that you could picture yourself indeed in your blood-washed linens, white and pure. Isn't that interesting? They're bloody but white. Purity and holiness. So it is that you are descending with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're asking yourself already, how did I get there? How did I get there to come here? Or maybe it's not me. Maybe it's another group of Christians. So then we're asking the questions, which Christians is it? Which group? Do they belong to a particular era of human history? Should we begin to arbitrarily pick them out of Holy Scripture? Maybe there's somebody who died in the first century in John's Gospel. Early 90s maybe. They belong to this return. We would be, as you see, way off kilter to do so. And then maybe we would ask ourselves, well, maybe they belong to a particular type of death. So then, in order to return and slay our enemies, we all seek that kind of death. And we might have vengeance as mine as we join with the Lord, saith myself. So we think, okay, we need to ask these questions to grow in our understanding of our hope expanding in the one return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the group of Christians. I want to share with you right this point. As I begin to 
cry uncle at this point of our investigation, but I am with some sense of confidence going forward with you. I would not share it if I were not confident of it, yet at this same point, I do want to be honest, uh, there are some mysteries that are present within this apocalyptic picture that I won't test your orthodoxy by. (laughs) If we agree upon this exegesis together for these next few moments, I will not ask everyone to raise their hands and who agrees can stay and who doesn't can go. I certainly would not do that. Yet I do offer you some sense of confidence, I trust, as you've come this morning, to give you a good, solid, I trust, by faith, way forward. And understanding the army indeed is the Christian community, those believers in Christ. Yet we've recognized a sense of a need to join with him. We need to somehow be there in order to then join with him and come here. And this is what many of us have heard at one point or another called the rapture. Have, you, have many of you heard of this conversation? Uh, it is an issue of, of, of joining up to meet the Lord in the air and then to begin to descend with him in victory. Okay? This is known as rapture. And many of you are probably asking that question. Maybe you have read the Tim LaHaye series at some point, which if you've been with us for a portion of time through the book of Revelation, you've recognized I'm not sitting underneath those novels. Yet it is together that many of us have this sense that indeed many are going to, National Geographic even did a special on that uh, at one point, which they're always doing interesting Christian uh, documentaries on there. Uh, and, 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 And they were just calculating the level of chaos that will indeed occur when many of us disappear and the world continues to go on, but we have disappeared. And then the conspiracies that indeed will be broadcast on on the evening news, and we've all confirmed it's true. Aliens did exist in another dimension. They have gathered a large population of the American society and indeed around the world. And now we're just all here waiting for the alien return. And the conspiracies go. I don't have that kind of insight for you this morning. I hope we have a better way forward. But in order to kind of piece together this army that is gathering with the Lord and this sense of rapture, And when does it take place? And how is it going to take place? And can it indeed involve you? I think we need to step outside right here of Revelation chapter 19 and look at the broader statement that is, again, Paul's comment on the end times that harmonizes with John. Let me confess to you, there is not a great diversity of body of teaching throughout the New Testament, and it's somehow incompatible with one another. It's harmonized we can with great confidence recognize Paul in light of John. There is one harmonious work of God in Holy Scripture. And so we'll be good students to be informed by Paul as we continue to learn from John. So if you would then, for the next couple of moments, go with me to 1 Thessalonians 4 to kind of speak on this army and the army gathering to the Lord Jesus Christ to descend with him if indeed this army be proven to be the church. The broader teaching on this is found in 1 Thessalonians, if we go to this idea of the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm briefly going to walk through this passage with you, and we will come back and conclude uh, a few comments and with our time together. As you look at chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians on this idea of the Christian army descending with the Lord, I want to pick up with you uh, in verse 13, as you have noted there probably In your Bible version, it says something to the effect of describing the paragraph as the return or coming of the Lord. So we'll pick up there in verse 13 with Paul speaking to the church at Thessalonica. The church, in a brief statement reading our passage together, in your mind, put yourself there in Thessalonica. Your problem at this point that you're wrestling with in this church community is the resurrection. This is what you're struggling with, and this is what Paul's writing to speak to you about. The resurrection. The reality of the bodily resurrection. Are you thankful this morning for the thought of the bodily resurrection? So it is that Paul writes to the church. I know you're confused about the truth of the physical resurrection, so let me clarify. This is how you're to read verse 13 and the rest of the passage. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brother. That is, not fully assimilating the truth of the resurrection. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve in your losses 
as others do who have no hope. To the Christian church this morning, those who have hope in death. For since we believe, here is the grounds of his argument, to strengthen you in the thought of the resurrection. And remember, our pursuit this morning is to identify the army that is returning. And our question in pursuit is, how did we get there to come here? Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. At this point, that comment of bringing with him is joining Jesus. If you see in verse 14, those who have died have gone to be with God through Jesus, right? So Jesus died and rose again. God brought Jesus unto himself in the event of the resurrection. Jesus also is bringing, or God is bringing, those who have died along with Jesus into the kingdom. So at this point of verse 14, God has brought Christ into the kingdom and he is also bringing with him those who fall asleep. So right now, if you were to die or you are wondering about a loved one, you are concerned if you were to die today, What would become of me if you have lost a loved one and you are struggling with an uninformed mind regarding their whereabouts? Paul writes to inform you with great hope in the reality of the resurrection. Those who have died have come alive in the presence of Christ. God has brought Jesus and with him into his kingdom those who have fallen asleep. This is your promise this morning. If you walk out of here, I hope not, and get hit by the bus, we will grieve, but not as those without hope. We know that you will, again, your body will rise, and at this moment, God brought you with Jesus into the kingdom. There is life after death. So it is, as Paul continues to describe here for a few moments as we speak, okay, so far we have a kingdom established. God, Jesus, and those who have already fallen asleep are there. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive right now in the first century and in the 21st century, us who are alive, who are left here until the coming of the Lord, I want to encourage you, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We're alive. They've already fallen asleep. They're already with Him. We will not precede them. There is no soul sleep. They are not not in the company of the Lord. They've been brought by God in Jesus into His presence. And here we are still alive. We will not precede them. Verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend. This is what we celebrated last week. He, riding upon the white horse, who is faithful and true to what Paul said here, He will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Each of these statements, I want to encourage you of the cry, of the voice of the archangel, of the sound of the trumpet, are awakening those who are with the Lord in His kingdom. Look how He explains it. Look at By way of this cry of command, the sound of the archangel, the trumpet of God, look at what responds to the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. This is the bodily resurrection. He will sound a trump. And redemptive history will end. And the dead in Christ will rise. Their body will be raised. We will be made like Him. The completion of the picture is beginning to be painted. There will be a great cry of command. A trumpet of God will sound and the dead in Christ, their bodies will be raised. 
then, so as we see a bodily resurrection, Paul then, again, because they're uninformed about the bodily resurrection, struggling with the saints who have already fallen asleep, Paul assures them they're in the kingdom with Christ. As God brought Jesus, so He brought with Him all who have fallen asleep. But they will not forever be without body. Their bodies will be raised also. And it will happen when? When the trumpet of God will sound. The dead in Christ will rise. Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, Again, the dead in Christ, the bodily resurrection of those who have died in Christ will raise. Then we, remaining, who are left alive, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We say, no, this is reserved for, for an eschatology class. Really, pastor, you should teach this in some block course somewhere. You see, that's not true. Paul just told me and you together, encourage one another with these things. Oh, save eschatology for a more you know, focused time. I want to encourage you with these things. As I myself am encouraged. We will together forever be with the Lord. Does that encourage you? So it isn't reserved for another time. It isn't reserved for another people. It's reserved for us to encourage one another this morning. We will be with the Lord forever. And all who have fallen asleep in Him, we can rest assured. We can grieve as those who have hope. God brought Jesus and He brought with them All of his people who have fallen asleep. Our loved ones are with him. And we will meet with them in the event of the return. In the bodily resurrection. The dead in Christ that we grieve, they will be raised first. And then us, who are here remaining, we too will be gathered unto meet him. In the clouds, so shall we forever be with the Lord. This is the meaning of human history. This is where redemptive history is leading us. It is my conviction, I think with great confidence, that the event of the rapture, as is described here by Paul, that the dead in Christ will rise first to meet him in the clouds, so too will we who are left be drawn up to meet them and him together in the clouds, and it is at that same moment, if we want to call it the, I don't know how an eye twinkles, but if we want to call that the twinkling of the eye experience, we will so return to forever be with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth. It isn't under, I think we struggle to find in Paul or in any other apocalyptic literature that would indicate that we would be caught up to meet the Lord. Human history would continue for a thousand years physically on the earth and then he will, for a second time, return. What we have here is a very clear teaching, concretely so in this text, that the dead in Christ will rise to be with him at the descent. We too will be gathered with him, so shall we forever be with the Lord in an immediate descent where judgment will take place and the new heaven and the new earth will begin. I think this, if I could offer this piece of evidence to you as you begin to chew on it, if I could offer it to you, there is the word there, meet the Lord in the air. Okay, And in your mind you're thinking, okay, what does it mean to meet the Lord in the air? It is used three times in Holy Scripture. That verb is used three times in Holy Scripture. Let me give you the, uh, the references here if you wish to jot them down. Some wish to jot them down and follow up later. Why I think the return is this picture of Revelation 19. We are caught up in a moment to meet the Lord. We are his army arrayed in fine, beautiful linens. Have you thought for yourself, this kind of works. I think this guy might be onto something. Because they're wearing white linens when they return. How do disembodied spirit wear white linens? An interesting but convincing piece. So it is that they will be drawn up, translated into their resurrected bodies 
and so return with the Lord. Because this verb, to meet the Lord in the air, is used three times in Holy Scripture. Let me offer you the references. Verse, um, uh, it is uh, Acts 28.15. And the second reference, and I'll give a brief explanation, and we will leave our time in First Thessalonians. So the verb to meet the Lord is used Acts twenty eight fifteen and Matthew twenty five six and here in First Thessalonians four. Those are your three uses throughout the entire New Testament about this one verb being used. And how is it used in the other two uses that give us information to how to translate it here in First Thessalonians four? Let me share with you in my final piece of convincing you that indeed we are caught up to meet the Lord and immediately return with him as his victorious army, dressed in fine, pure, blood-washed linens. How so? Because in Acts 28, where the verb is used, Paul is actually in Rome and he is going out or he is coming in as a dignitary. Brothers from Rome are rushing out to meet him. And as they meet him, the action upon meeting is immediately are returning with him. So they run out. So let's pretend this is the the gate of the city. And I'm looking. And I'm seeing my brother Paul. I open the gate. I rush out to meet Paul. I greet him to welcome him immediately back with me. This is the terminology used there in Acts 28. Go yet further to the virgin ceremony, the virgin meal where the virgins are encouraged uh, they are to be prepared for the Lord in Matthew. The master of the feast is coming. Let us be prepared to meet him and enjoy the marital feast with him. So it is that there are three uses of that term in the New Testament. Why would we suggest anything other than consistency of usage? That if the other two meets and greets involve going out, meeting, greeting, and immediately returning and welcoming, it would be odd of us to suggest. In 1 Thessalonians 4, that must not be the meaning here, however, even though we're two for three. We'd probably be best on odds to say, we just figured it out. We're three for three. We meet the Lord. We welcome Him as we return with Him. And this is fully consistent with the picture of Revelation 19 as the army of the Lord who comes with him. So when will we be gathered? At the sound of the trump. At the voice of the archangel. The dead in Christ will rise first. We too will meet him. Translate into our resurrected bodies. Bearing these blood washed white linens. And so too will we forever be with the Lord. To return, descend for judgment. And a new heaven and a new earth. Where righteousness and peace forever dwell. This is the ordering of this passage to identify who is the army of God returning with them. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both those who have already fallen asleep, for we will not, Paul says, precede them. They will not be soldiers left behind. I think we could say Holy Scripture's uh, commandment to us is that which the army says, leave no soldier behind. Okay, we won't. They'll rise first. And then we, who are then left, won't be left behind either. That kind of is interesting in light of the novels, left behind. We won't be. We too shall be caught up together with the Lord. So shall no man be left behind. We will be victorious with Christ our King. So, too, then, based here to return. If you would go with me back to Revelation 19, as we're digging just a little bit as together you're with me and recognizing there is only one return. And there are two experiences. And Christ makes all the difference. When He appears, we will be with Him and made like Him, or we will suffer the consequences of our unbelief. The final piece here I want to draw your attention to in our passage of Revelation 19 is just moving beyond the divine warrior and his army and briefly introduce to you the picture of warfare. So we move beyond just this sense of here is the divine warrior king who emerges on the scene of redemptive history. Here is the army, you and I by faith, who are caught up to be with him, translated, and we're returning with him. So we see the divine warrior who comes on the white horse. We see the army who stands behind him as they're all descending down now and we're moving from their identities to their actions. The action of warfare that awaits the earth. 
I want to draw your attention to the thought of, will I then be armed? Because some of us can be squeamish, can't we? Am I the one who's going to be, you know, do I need combat training of the divine type? I mean, what's my sword going to go with? Interesting, David, if we were to look upon David, uh, David says he's getting ready to fight Goliath. I think we would be wise too. Maybe we're a little nervous. As he's going out, he's given a bigger sword and a big shield, and he says what? I can't go fight that guy with these. I've never even tested them. How do I know they're going to work? I've got to fight with what I'm trained in. Right? And he goes out with this dynamic little sling. So it is that maybe some of us are thinking, how, you know, how do I know it's going to work? Or I can't go to battle with these things. I have not trained in them. Or will the Lord just arm me in a way that I'm trained? I think a better way forward for all of us who might be squeamish about battle to be able to look at the text and at the center stands the same king who has stood at the center of every significant in all events of human redemptive history. At the center of warfare stands the king of kings. Stands the Lord of lords. Look with me how we look. The army indeed comes, but we are behind the king of kings. Look at the action of verse 15 and 16 as we look. No need for squeamishness on our part. Look to the Lord and be saved. Verse 15, the action of Christ, the word of God, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron coming from Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. For on His robe, though we're all outfitted with white linens, indeed bearing white blood-washed robes, it is on His robe and on His thigh. He has a name, the King of kings and the Lord of Lords. If we were to look to Christ in this passage of the action of warfare, I wish to strengthen you and encourage you to note that as we look to the final battle of human history, it is Christ alone who is said to strike down, rule over, and tread upon his enemies. So if you be at this time, as I know when I was a kid, well, maybe not a kid. Maybe when I was in seminary. A bit nervous on all the end times events, how exactly some of this is going to play out. And wondering about your role and identity with such. If the battle scene at the end where the blood is said to rise to the horse's bridle, and you're thinking, I'm not cut out for that scene, need not worry. Because, see, the reason is because you're not the king. And you're not the Lord. That's the grounds upon which he himself is able to perfectly and righteously eradicate his enemies. Because he is he who is faithful and true. It is he who is the perfect testament of the words of God. Therefore, it is from his tongue that comes the truth of God that shatters his enemies. None of us think that he has a sword protruding out of his mouth, right? Surely we're together. So then we begin to wonder, what is this sword that protrudes from the mouth? Well, we have it right there in the text. It is the testimony of the word of God and his truthfulness that will confound the enemy they will realize in a moment they were wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. So it is the testimony of his truth will stand to devour all who said, my inn is full, I have no room. In this picture, we have the kind of fulfillment of, Psalm, or of Philippians 2, where the enemies here begin. 
And we'll get to the final picture where indeed they will completely bow. But in this descent, the enemy's knee begins to bow. Their tongue is preparing to make the good confession. Because the word of God is boldly being laid out before them in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king over them, the Lord over them. And they are going to confess and bow. And what is it that they will confess as they bow? The name of Jesus, which is above every name. Where? On earth, under earth, and in heaven above. And they will do this confession and this bowing to the glory of God the Father. This is the picture that we have here in the one return of the Lord Jesus Christ that is glorious. Two experiences, one return. Jesus Christ stands at the center. The final contrast is we've been speaking for a couple of weeks now about how the book of Revelation here, particularly in 18 and 19, is set up in a great contrast. Do you remember Babylon was destroyed and there was silence? No one is allowed to speak in you anymore. There will be no sound of harp and lyre in you anymore. There will be no more joyful wedding feasts and sounds coming from you no more. You are dead silent. And then the church, in great contrast to the silence of Babylon, is screaming loud in praise. They sound so loud like a roaring thunder and rushing water. They're celebrating the day of redemption. Babylon is suffering in silence the day of execution. And this constant contrast of the people of God in the admonition to you in the moment, stop rebelling, repent, and trust in Christ. is constantly before you. And then you see the king descend. Last week, he who rode in on a lowly colt now returns in a white horse. He who bore a crown of thorns now comes wearing royal diadems. Here is the final contrast I wish to show with you as we summarize our time together. There is yet the final contrast. Two invitations. One return. Two invitations. This is the part where I'm joining with you in an appeal Be reconciled to God. Note the two invitations. One experience of the return. Two experiences of an individual at the return. Notice with me the final statement in our time together. Verse 9 is the very first invitation of the great contrast of experiences at the Lord's blessed return. Verse 9. And the angel said to me, Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at the second invitation in our text, beginning in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he invited all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the other supper. Two invites, two suppers. Have them gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and their riders. The flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. You see, in the one marriage supper, in the one invitation is a great day of wedding jubilation, feasting, celebrating. Rejoicing. And the Lamb stands at the center of the meal as He has made a way for the children to eat. And He has invited them. And do you see the children, those who respond to the gospel by faith, receiving Christ, turning from sin, turning to Him, walking by faith. Do you see the statement upon the children? Those who have received the gospel, they are 
blessed. Do you see the other invitation to the great supper in contrast? There is yet other feasting taking place outside that room where God's wrath stands at the center. Not the lamb, but the wrath of God. And that is not a statement of blessedness. It is a statement of torment. I offer to you this final contrast in a moment. Receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive the invitation this morning in Christ to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Be washed in the blood-washed linen of the Lord. Be found in Him when that trump does sound and you are gathered up to be with Him forever. Make sure of that today, for it will come upon us suddenly, in a moment, and many will wail on account of Him. They will be ushered off to the other supper, the great supper of God. One return, two experiences. No more than two, no less than two. With Christ Jesus standing at the center. Father, I thank you for my few moments with the people of God this morning. I thank you for this picture of your return. I pray two things primarily upon my heart in this moment for those here at Redeemer this morning. I pray for the encouragement of the saints this morning with a picture of the final act of redemptive history that they will not be left behind. They will hear the trump blast. They will see loved ones gathered. They too will be translated in a moment. So shall they ever be with the Lord. So I pray, as Paul instructed me, encourage the church with these things. I pray by the Spirit, the church to be encouraged by these things. I then also pray for those among us who are not a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Not that they are not a part of this church, but they are not a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not trusted in the gospel that's been offered them. They have not trusted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but rather treasured up sin and rejected the gospel. I pray by the Spirit, through this text, in our time together, they will fall under conviction and repentance, turn to Christ, and be saved. That they will look forward to being at the marriage supper rather than the great supper of God. We pray all these things in Christ's name. 